Thanks, Jacob. Good morning. So go ahead and keep those Bibles open because we're going to be referencing back to that scripture a lot throughout the message today. Today we are starting a four-week sermon series that we are going to call the God Is series. And our original plan was to give these messages leading up to VBS, so that's our in-the-wild background. But God had a different plan for this summer. Something that I want to quickly point out is that this series is not an attempt to define God. The truth of the matter is that we know so little of the divine providence and greatness of our God that it would be foolish of us to even try and define him. But the goal of this series is to point out some of the characteristics of God that we can gain from the scripture. But before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning and as we, as we turn our eyes upon you, Lord, I pray, that, I pray that I could just be a messenger of your word and that the Holy Spirit will work through me, Lord. I know there's, there's some crazy things going on in this world today, and Lord, I just ask that we can take a minute to focus on what's truly important, and that is you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The world that we live in today is, is great. We live in a great nation. We have a great church building. We have great cell phone service and great TVs. Maybe we even consider another person to be great. But can I ask you a question this morning? What is great? We make a lot of things great, and many of these things can actually be considered idols, which is my first point today. In fact, idolatry is the most prevalent sin that we are going to examine in our time together this morning. Let's read in verse, in verse uh, 16 of Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, I'm not claiming to remember much about my world history class, but the Athenian culture was considered to be great, filled with marvelous artwork and revolutionary thinkers. And the people of Athenia embraced this culture to the point that biblical scholars suggest that it was easier to find an idol in the city than another person. Does this sound familiar to you? It does to me. We live in a world that fantasizes greatness and perfection in earthly deities, maybe into the, even to the point that we overuse this concept altogether. However, idolatry isn't something that has just surfaced as of recent. Recall back in Exodus 32 when Moses visited God on the mountaintop for just about a week, only to find that those who were following him had built a giant golden calf and were worshiping that. If that's how quickly we can turn our eyes away from God in a large group, Think about how quickly we can do it individually. What are some of the things that we consider to be great? You thinking about it? I came up with a list of my own. Our families, sports, careers, money, fame, status, appearance, likes, and if you're like me, maybe you even fall into the trap of thinking that we ourselves are great. But church, I want to dig a little deeper this morning and ask if we don't do the same thing right here in this own church building. I don't mean to step on any toes this morning, but do we maybe worship the cross that was used to crucify Jesus? Do we maybe think a little too highly of this church's tradition? Maybe our order of service? I'm asking you these questions this morning to make you aware that we are not exempt from the sin of idolatry just because we come to church on Sunday. J.D. Greer, pastor at the Summit Church in North Carolina, says, Idolatry is behind all of our sin, and it happens when we place a higher weight on something other than God. St. Louis Crossing Church, what are you worshiping this morning? I don't want to harp solely on the message of idolatry because there are so many important pieces to be included, but idols are plaguing the church 
this church, the American church, the global church. Ligon Duncan, chancellor of the Reformed Theological Seminary, states, there are two ways to commit idolatry. Worship something other than the true God or worship the true God in the wrong way. So we see from that quote that there are two different categories of idolatry. Worshiping something other than God, one, and two, worshiping God in the wrong manner, thus making him less than what he actually is. We so often refer to idolatry as abusing the gifts of God as more than just gifts, but trying to, to give God limitations is just as much of a fault on our part. God commands us not to add anything or take anything away from what he has instructed us to do. When, he, when we dismiss something that God commands of us, we are putting ourselves before God. Another form of idolatry. I want to move on from idolatry, but let's quickly move to verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. Paul calls to the Athenian spectators religious. And don't mistake that as a compliment. As Christians, we are not religious. Religion implies that we are saved if we believe the right things and do the right things. Religion puts the dependency on me, on you. But that's not how God works. No, it's not on me. No, it's not on you. God removed the burden of sin in my life by sending his holy and precious son, and he called me to repent of my sins. God is great because he is the creator. God is great because of his abounding grace, and we are Christians that are called to worship him. But please don't miss the point. If God's gifts in and of themselves aren't bad, God's gifts in and of themselves aren't bad, but if we prioritize them over God, that we find ourselves indulged in sin. So how do you know if you have an idol? Well, let me ask you a question. What are you doing the thing that you do? Is it to glorify God? Is it glorifying God? If every single thing that you do is to glorify God, you can't lose the battle against idolatry because you're living out your life for him rather than his gifts. So let's continue reading. You might have to flip back the page. We're going to be in uh, verse 17 now. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul starts off and immediately recognizes that the city is full of idols. And one verse later we read that he begins the mission of evangelism. And that is my second point. By reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath and to the non-Jews in the marketplace on the other days of the week. There's a key word in verse 17. Reasoned. Paul understood that he could go to the synagogue and cause a giant ruckus in response to their sin, but Paul also understood that anger might have not been the best approach towards spreading the gospel. He reasoned with the Jews, but Paul also reasoned with the non-Jews. The Bible specifically mentions the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as some of these non-Jews, and to the Athenians, these individuals were highly regarded because of their intelligence. Plato and Aristotle both completed a significant portion of their life's work in Athens, and they are still regarded as some of the greatest thinkers in all of history. And trust me, I've had to already take enough classes on them in college. But to the Athenians, these philosophers that Paul was preaching to were really what we would consider to be Ivy League professors today. 
And these Harvard professors turned to Paul when he was reasoning in the marketplace and legitimately called him a babbler and a preacher of foreign divinities, verse 18. Yet even when Paul, yet even while insulting Paul, they still invited him to give a message at the Areopagus. I had to pause right there and point out something that is very key. Paul didn't hesitate to go and preach the gospel to unbelievers. In Acts 16, Paul was thrown in jail after an encounter with a slave girl. Then in in chapter 17, Paul comes to Athens, the town of idols, and is ridiculed by the smartest individuals in the land. Paul was provoked to such a degree that he was willing to take any and all ridicule in order to advance the gospel. That seriously convicted me this week as I was studying the scripture. Is my heart provoked by sin? Am I willing to preach under fire from believers? Because Paul knew that every time he preached, there was a chance of him getting stoned or run out of town. And while many of us may not face the persecution when we share the gospel in this country, but part of accepting the grace of Christ is accepting that your faith is greater than anything that's going to come your way. And that is exactly what evangelism is. Evangelism was always an intimidating word for me, but it's not really that complex. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel and what Paul dedicated his life to, sharing the good news of what Jesus did, and he's revered as one of the best evangelists in history. But please don't mistake it for being easy. Paul spread the gospel even under immense pressure. How far are you willing to go to spread the gospel today? And this leads me right into my third point, which is the gospel. Let's read in verse 23 and following. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24. Then the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and and the boundaries of their dwelling grace, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of you, some of your poets have even said, for we indeed, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is invited and goes to preach in the Areopagus and passes by an altar inscribed with the words, to an unknown God. And Paul goes, actually, I know him. Don't miss it. Paul starts by sharing the gospel right there in those three words. It is some, it's not some elaborate sentence with a bunch of complex words. It's just a sentence that every single kid in this church can say. I know Jesus. Then Paul starts warming up. In verse 24, he starts back and references Genesis and God's creation, a book that our church became more familiar with this year. He says that God created us. We don't need to be served by, he doesn't need to be served by us. God gives us everything we, that we have, and from one man, he created every single nation on earth. Paul shares the glory of God, and there is never a time when we can overdo God's greatness. Paul goes on to say that even though God is the supreme creator, he isn't separated from us. In verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. We aren't apart from God because we are children of God. And being children of God doesn't mean that we are entitled to his gifts, but rather designed by the creator for a specific purpose. And Paul brought the meat of his message in verses 30 and 31. Let's read there. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but know he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day 
on which he will be judged, the, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has called us to repent from our sins because there is a day when he is coming and he will judge all the earth with complete authority. The good news of the gospel is that God gave us the ability to repent by sending his one and only son to die a a gruesome death on the cross. God expects us to respond to Jesus through repentance and faith. But how do we do that? We do this in prayer, by telling God that he is the one we trust in, by telling God that we repent of our sins and asking him for forgiveness, and then we turn our eyes upon Jesus. Greg Gilbert, pastor at Third Avenue Baptist Church, says this on the gospel. If God is ever to count us as righteous, he'll have to do it on the basis of someone else's record, someone who's qualified to stand in as a substitute. And that's what happens when a person is saved by Jesus. All of our sins are credited to Jesus who took the punishment for them. And the perfect righteousness of Jesus is then credited to us when we place our trust in what he has done for us. That's what faith means, to rely on Jesus to trust in him alone to stand in our place and win a righteous verdict for God. Sharing the gospel is what God calls us to do in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. The gospel is powerful and we are called to share it. And so, I think I'll close in the same way that Luke records in Acts 17, verse 32 and following. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, and in verse 32, but some men joined him and believed. Here's a simple truth that you need to understand today. You will receive opposition when you spread the gospel. It may not be the first time you do it, but you will eventually receive opposition. And when you share the gospel, some will mock, but others will say, we will hear you again on this. And some will join you and believe. The thing that we have to realize about sharing the gospel is that we as Christians are just messengers. We are called to share the gospel, but the Holy Spirit saves the person. And if you haven't accepted Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior and repented of your sins, I plead with you this morning to do exactly that. There is no time to waste. The time is now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I hope this message has glorified you this morning, Lord. I, I just want to place everything, everything below you this morning because, Lord, you are, you are the sole thing that we are to worship this morning. Lord, I pray that anybody here that has not accepted you into their hearts does this this morning, Lord. I pray, I pray over the three brothers that are about to be baptized this morning that that they commit and follow and believe in your word and repent of their sins, Lord, and that they can truly be messengers of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Sean. Uh, let's stand together and, and worship.